As we begin then today, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless. And uh, we really want him to be here as we talk about the Holy Spirit. Father, today we're starting this meeting as others are as well, asking that your Holy Spirit be here. And Lord, we're not doing that just as tradition. We truly want you to be here, not just in this meeting, but in this whole weekend with ASI. Lord, we desire your presence and your guidance. Help us to understand, I pray. And Lord, especially I pray you'll guide my words that I will say that which only you want me to say in Jesus name. Amen. amen. So we're going to start out where I, I mentioned this last night um, in introduction to the speakers. Christ the great teacher had an infinite variety of subjects from which to choose but the one upon which he dwelt most largely was the endowment of the Holy Spirit. What great things he predicted for the church because of this endowment. And that's really um, been an interest, I think, to Adventists, is the Holy Spirit, the latter rain. If you look at uh, Ellen White's index, there's 30-some pages just alone on references for the, the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the, the subject that Christ liked to dwell on, has been an important subject for Adventists since the very beginning. Now, I'm going to tell you, I forgot to tell you, put on your seatbelt because we're going to whip through this program, and uh, I don't, hopefully we'll make it through as far as we can. Now, I want to spend just a little time as we start talking a little bit about the latter rain loud cry. I'm not going to go through the Bible verses. We're familiar with those. But I do want to emphasize this one point, and that is how the loud, latter rain and the loud cry are really closely connected. Now, sometimes we talk about them separately. We say, you know, the loud cry is a message. The latter rain is the power that sends that message. And that's, that's a, a good way to define it. But... Like justification and sanctification, you can talk about them separately, but really when you talk about righteousness by faith, they go hand in hand. You really cannot separate them when it comes to the practical experience of righteousness by faith. And I believe that's the truth about latter rain and loud cry. They go together so closely that sometimes the, those lines are even blurred. And I want us to maybe see that we move beyond that, the idea that the latter rain is just this nebulous power, that it's really connected so closely with this loud cry that it has to do with truth and light and illumination. Revelation 18.1, even though it doesn't use the word laterine or loud cry, it's, it's the verse probably that Adventists look at when it comes to talking about the laterine and the loud cry, describing that time in which the uh, Holy Spirit is poured out and this final message goes to the world. Revelation 18.1, after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority or power, the King James says, and the earth was illuminated or lightened with his glory. Now you'll notice other texts in the Bible. We'll just look at this one, uh, Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 and 2. This is from the Song of Moses, right before Israel crossed over into the land of Canaan on the banks of Jordan. Give, ye, or give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth, my doctrine shall drop as rain, and my speech shall distill as dew, as the small rain, or we would say early rain, upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, latter rain. So again, the, the early and latter rain is connected not just to a, a nebulous power, but it's connected to doctrine, to truth, to illumination about that truth. So when the latter rain and the loud cry come, they, they come as a package, is what I'm saying. Now, Ellen White talks about this 
uh, throughout her writings, and we could spend the whole hour just looking at some statements on that. By the way, before I go, I should mention, you know, Joel chapter 2, verse 23, uh, the former reign is referred to there. The marginal reading is teacher of righteousness. So the concept there again in, in uh, Joel that this early latter reign is more than just power. It's a, the Holy Spirit comes as a teacher of righteousness to illuminate. Now notice this, Ellen White writing about the early reign experience. The Savior knew that when the Holy Spirit should come upon the disciples in full measure, their minds would be illuminated and they would fully understand the work before them and take it up just where he had left it. So again, the disciples spent three and a half years with Jesus. Somehow, because of their unbelief, some of those things didn't come through. But after that prayer and upper room experience and the, latter, and the early rain was poured out, it wasn't just power. Their minds were illuminated to understand those things which Jesus had been trying to tell them for three and a half years, plus much more that he was trying to teach them. Another statement from Ellen White. When the latter rain comes upon the people of God, you must have a preparation to press right on because those whose vessels are clean, whose hands are free, just when the latter rain comes, get the power. Is that what she says? Notice it's get the light that comes from on high and their voices are lifted up, one, uh, one to proclaim the commandments to go out and the testimony of Jesus. So again, the, the latter rain and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit has power, but it's because it's connected with light and illumination. One last statement here. We have now the invitation of mercy to become vessels unto honor, and then we need not worry about the latter rain. All we have to do is keep our vessels cl vessel clean and right side up, prepared for the reception of the heavenly rain and keep praying. So you notice the word picture here. And this is the prayer. Notice the double quotes here. Let the latter rain come into my vessel. Let the light of the glorious angel which unites in the third, with the third angel shine upon me. So again, you notice that connection here. Now, A.G. Daniels saw this, and I could quote many others, but A.G. Daniels in 1926, uh, after 22 years as General Conference President, in his book, Christ Our Righteousness, uh, connected, saw the connection in this as he studied this subject of righteousness by faith. This places the latter rain visitation with the loud cry, the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, and the flooding of the earth with the light of the third angel's message. It is evident that the beginning or opening of these events is at the same time. The appearance of one is a signal for all to appear. Now, the reason I emphasize this point is there are some that have suggested that, well, you know, the, latter, the loud cry came, and we've accepted that. We're just waiting for the latter rain. But really, the loud cry in its fullest sense cannot come and be accepted and proclaimed without the latter rain being there with it from the beginning. Now, I don't believe, uh, that even, even in the early rain, that it was just a one-time event the latter rain begins to fall and light begins to shine and as the, the rising sun, it becomes brighter and brighter until the earth is lightened with his glory. Well, understanding our past will help us unlock the future and a very well-known statement here, we have nothing to fear for the future except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teaching in our past history. And that's what we're doing today. We're looking at the past for the purpose of um, moving forward without fear. Now, the uh, 
introduction, or the little explanation in the brochure talked about the presentation starting with the year 1844. And actually, in my book, uh, Return of the Latter Rain, I do start with 1844, but I don't have time to do that today. So we're actually going to start a little bit later. But in 1880s, I see an emphasis, an increase in emphasis of Ellen White in regard to the coming of the loud cry in the latter rain. It was as though she realized what was happening on the earth at that time. God was ready to move. Now, of course, we understand that that there's uh, evidence that you know Christ could have come before that in the 1850s. But I believe a new generation had come, and this was God bringing light to the church, and Ellen White was sensing that. And she says, it's 1885, the spirit which characterized that wonderful meeting on the day of Pentecost is waiting to manifest its power upon the people, or upon the men who are now standing between the living and the dead as ambassadors for God. The power which stirred the people so mightily in the 1844 movement will again be revealed. The third angel's message will go forth in not whispered tones, but with a loud voice. Another statement, this was 1886. She actually wrote this a couple years later. But in 1886, while in Europe, she had a dream or a vision about what was taking place at the 1886 conference. And in that dream, an angel or her guide made this statement. Said my guide, there is much light yet to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. Again, the law and the gospel combined. This message, understood in its true character and proclaimed in the spirit, will lighten the earth with its glory. The closing work of the third angel's message will be attended with a power that will send the rays of the Son of Righteousness into all the highways and byways of life. Again, I see even a, a connection there with the message of righteousness by faith. And this is in 1886, even before the Minneapolis General Conference. Now, the summer of 1888, Ellen White had returned home from Europe. She was in Hillsburg there, and she had a, a dream that really troubled her. We're going to look just a little bit at this dream she had. I was in an assembly when a man of noble, majestic stature came in and took his position on the platform and unrolled something which looked like several long leaves fastened together. And as he turned the pages, his hand ran down the pages and his eyes swept over the congregation. So you get the, the picture that there's a scroll there being rolled down and this uh, angel is going through that scroll. I saw their different names and characters and sins that were written down. These sins were right among the ministers and the people. Page after page was turned. Well, how was this? Ellen White asked. And a voice said that the time had come when the work in heaven is all activity for the inhabitants of this world. The time had come when the temple and its worshipers had to be measured. Now, she's quoting there, I mean, this measuring of the temple and the worshipers thereof is from Revelation chapter 11. And we could spend an hour just on that. Well, this dream troubled her so much, she woke up, you know, great drops of perspiration dripping from her. It meant something, something God was working to bring about something. And yet, when he came among his people, Everything was not right. Now, a couple of years later, several years later, Ellen White had a similar dream. And I want, to know, I want you just to notice how, what she connects this with. In my dream, a sentinel stood at the door of the important building and asked everyone who came for entrance, have ye received the Holy Ghost? A measuring line was in his hand. Then notice, um, she says, all who go in through this door have on a wedding garment 
woven in the loom of, the loom of heaven, that garment being the robe of righteousness. So you see this measuring had a connection with the Holy Spirit and the wedding garment. So after this dream in 1888, Ellen White was so, I think, impressed with the importance of this. She sent a letter to all the brethren who were going to assemble together there at the General Conference in 1888, and she wrote them this note. We are impressed that this gathering will be the most important meeting you have ever attended. All selfish ambitions should be laid aside, and you should plead with God for his spirit to descend upon you as it came upon the disciples who were assembled together upon a day of Pentecost. So you notice that emphasis. It's as if she's saying, get ready for this meeting. We should be praying for the latter rain like the disciples were praying for the early rain during the time of Pentecost. Well, Ellen White, right after this, became so troubled over that, this dream and other things that she actually was on her sickbed, thought she was going to die for two weeks. She actually hoped she was going to die. And yet uh, the people in Oakland, particularly the camp meeting there, they prayed for her and the Lord raised her up. And on October 2, she got on the train and headed for Minneapolis. She arrived there on uh, October 10 when the uh, ministerial institute began, which was kind of the, the early meetings before the, the regular general conference. And 1888. And there were approximately 90, 90 plus delegates gathered there. I've read as many as maybe 500 other attendees or total attendees during the three weeks that this meeting went on. And they were representing about 27,000 church members at that time, mostly, of course, church members, Adventist church members from the U.S. Of course, at that time, it was probably 98% Adventists were in the United States. So understand that whatever took place at this meeting would then go out to the rest of the church because this was the, the leadership body of the Adventist church. Now, I want to make it clear at this point, we are not looking at this to take pot shots at our pioneers or at leadership or anything like that. It's not an us versus them attitude, and, and we don't want to portray that in any way. But I think we have to be honest with our history because it has been written down by inspired writings for us today, and I think it's important for us. Now, the first meeting, this is... Uh, Ellen White spoke about 20 times during this three-week period. And uh, we have, I believe, uh, 15 are available to read today. Or maybe it's 11. I can't remember. 15, I believe it is. Now, this is what Ellen White said on October 11. This is the very next day, first meeting that she had. Now, as we assemble, as we have assembled here, we want to make the most of our time. But we too often let opportunities slip away, and we do not realize the benefit from which from them which we should, if ever we needed the Holy Ghost to be with us, if ever we needed to preach in the demonstration of the Spirit, it is at this very time. And of course, that's because of what was going on in the world as well. She, the world was coming to a point of crisis, and God was ready to move. The baptism, Ellen White continues, the baptism of the Holy Ghost will come upon us at this very meeting if we will have it so. Now, you can read through Ellen White's writings, and there are many places where that term, baptism of the Holy Ghost, is 
associated very closely with the latter rain. And I believe that's what she's talking about here. Let us commence right here in this meeting and not wait till the meeting is half through. We want the Spirit of God here now, and we need it, and we want it to be revealed in our characters. Now, brethren, I have felt one of the most solemn burdens, she says, just in a meeting here the, the, that next week, since I have returned from Europe. And I will tell you, as I told my friends in Oakland, how horribly afraid, how I, I feel horribly afraid to come into our conference. I have been awake at night after night with a sense of agony for the people of God that this sweat would roll off of me. Some things fearfully impressive were presented to me. And then she told the story about her dream that summer. So obviously that dream made an, a powerful uh, impression on her mind. Now, G.I. Butler, the general conference president, was not there. He was sick at home because he was mostly because he was so concerned that there was a conspiracy going on to literally undermine the church. And he actually felt Ellen White was caught up in this conspiracy, along with Jones and Wagner. And he wrote her a 39-page letter. And on Sunday, October 14, she responded with a 20-page letter. And this is what she said. Now, this is only four days into the general conference. The spirit and influence of the ministers generally who have come to this meeting is to discard light. From this night's work, there will arise false imaginings, cruel and unjust misunderstandings that will work like leaven in every church and close the hearts to the striving of the Spirit of God. The influence of this meeting will be as far-reaching as eternity. And I believe, you know, we, we still haven't reached eternity yet, and I believe that meeting still affects us today. Ellen White, four days into the conference, realized how serious this was. Now, again, I'm just glossing over some of this history, but I think this is important so that when we look at the revivals that took place, we will be able to compare. This is on sometime right after that, October 15. There's actually not a date, but I believe that's actually how this fits in as I look at all the other elements in this meeting. It is high time, Ellen White says, that we awake out of sleep and that we seek the Lord with all the heart. I know he will be found of us. I know that all heaven is at our command, just as soon as we love God with all our hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. God will work with us. How shall we stand in the time of the latter rain? Who expects to have a part in the first resurrection? Now that time of the latter rain, I believe, is taken from Zechariah 10 verse 1, where it talks about asking the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. Was it Ellen White indicating, is this the time of the latter rain she was speaking of at 1888? Well, several years later, she said, years ago in 1899, the time came for the Holy Spirit to descend in a special manner upon God's earnest self-sacrificing workers. So I believe that years ago at least applied to back to 1888, maybe before. G.B. Starr, a minister that uh, spent 10 years with Ellen White in Australia, he was a Bible teacher, and uh, he actually attended the general conference. And this is what he wrote in a manuscript later. I, it was my privilege to attend the general conference at Minneapolis, Minnesota. There, the subject of righteousness by faith was emphasized as it had never, been before, never before been among SDA ministers. Sister White was present and daily through influence in decided words with the presentations of this subject. She stated 
that this marked the beginning of the latter rain and the loud cry of the third angel's message. Now, unfortunately, that, his manuscript never got published. 1893, he wrote a letter to A.T. Jones uh, right during the General Conference of 1893, and this is what he said in his letter at that time. Sister White says that we have been in the time of the latter rain since the Minneapolis meetings. Well, on uh, October 17, the uh, General Conference proper actually began. There were business meetings, but some of the religious meetings or the, the uh, spiritual meetings followed through the whole conference. And so this is October 18, the first day of the actual General Conference, and this is what Ellen White said that morning meeting. Brethren and sisters, there is great need at this time of humbling ourselves before God that the Holy Spirit may come upon us. May God help us that his spirit may be made manifest among us. We should not wait until we go home to obtain this blessing. So again, this is an emphasis right into the general conference. The next day, she said, October 19, we should seek to have our actions of such a character that we will not shrink from having our Savior look upon them. Christ is here this morning. Angels are here, and they are measuring the temple of God and those who worship therein. What's she referring to? That, that dream that she had the summer before. Well, October 20, next day. Here I tell you what a terrible thing it is if God gives light and it is impressed on your heart and spirit for you to do as the Jews did. God will withdraw his spirit unless his truth is accepted. And again, notice how the truth and the Holy Spirit's outpouring go hand in hand. If God brings truth, the Holy Spirit brings truth, and that truth is not accepted, is the, can the Holy Spirit continue to work? No. Well, October 24, this was the last time Ellen White would speak, and this is what she said in that talk. Now, our meeting is drawing to a close, and not one confession has been made. There has not been a single break so as to let the Spirit of God in. Now, I was saying that what was the use of our assembling here together and for our ministering brethren to come in if they are here only to shut out the Spirit of God from the people? I mean, these are really solemn things Ellen White was saying to those people there. Well, Ellen White actually was so discouraged on uh, the 24th of October that she planned to leave because not only from the... The, the, the lack of reception of the message that was brought, but because her own uh, inspiration was called into question. And she felt, why spend any more time here? So she was actually planning to leave. Well, that night she had a dream. And notice the double quotes here. This is what the angel told her. From this meeting, decisions will be made for life or death. Not that anyone need perish, but spiritual pride and self-confidence will close the door that Jesus and his Holy Spirit's power shall not be admitted. But I, I'm so thankful for this next sentence. They shall have another chance to be undeceived and repent. So notice here that even the angels telling her that the Holy Spirit that's trying to come will not be admitted. Now, I think we need to realize this because, you know, often we hear about 1888 and we think about, well, they were talking about long Galatians and arguing over the Ten Kings and there was all these personality issues and yes that was part of it but the bottom line was that God was wanting to pour out the Holy Spirit at that time 
Well, Ellen White would write about this event. I mean, there's four volumes. You could read all four volumes, and you would find this emphasis in there. This she wrote in 1896 that summarizes, I shall never, I think, be called to stand under the direction of a Holy Spirit as I stood at Minneapolis. The presence of Jesus was with me. All assembled in that meeting had an opportunity to place themselves on the side of truth by receiving the Holy Spirit, which was sent by God in such rich and rich current of love and mercy. But in the rooms occupied by some of our people was heard ridicule, criticism, jeering, and laughter. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit was attributed to fanaticism. And that's a whole other theme that I would like to spend the whole hour just on that and just trace, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit is truly poured out and it's identified as fanaticism, what can God do at that point? Well, Ellen White would summarize, you know, over the rest of her life. She wrote, this meeting has been the saddest experience of my life. The position and work God gave me at that conference was disregarded by nearly all. Rebellion was popular. Their course was an insult to the Spirit of God. And then she wrote this, quoting from Zechariah 13:6, Christ was wounded in the house of his friends. And that's actually where the title came from that book. Now, I don't want you to think at this point, I'm glad we still have more time because this is just the bad news. But sometimes I think we need to know the, the bad news, if you will, before we can appreciate how good the good news really is. Now, Paul does that. Romans, first three chapters. I mean, by the time you get there, it's like, wow, there's no hope for the whole human race. But now, the righteousness of, right? Well, not everyone who came to Minneapolis rebelled. I, I don't want to give that impression. Many received that message and were blessed. F.H. Westfall was one of them. I wish we could go through many of them. This is what he said. The message at Minneapolis became most precious to the heart of Westfall. It was sweet music to my soul, he said. He went back to Plainfield, Wisconsin, told the church that the latter rain had started. As a result, one farmer sold his farm, put his money into the Lord's work, took up canvassing, and was finally ordained to the ministry. So many people, they said, wow, the Lord is at work, and uh, hallelujah, we're, we're going to go out and work for the Lord. Well, in that last meeting that Ellen White gave, talked on uh, October 24 at the General Conference, she made this comment. Now, this is the last minister's meeting we will have unless you wish to meet together yourselves. If the ministers will not receive the light, I want to give the people a chance, perhaps they may receive it. So for the rest of this time, I want to look at what happened when at Ellen White's direction, this message went to the people around the country as she joined with um, other ministers uh, she went directly from Minneapolis to Battle Creek. We won't look at that. We'll look at South Lancaster and the amazing results that happened there. South Lancaster Academy, January 1889. It was going to be just a weekend meeting for um, three or four days, and it ended up going extending into a, a week and a half. There was, it, the ministers came, and it was kind of a general meeting for the members in that area, but it was held at the school, so the students also soon became involved. Now, Haskell was there, A.T. Jones, and Ellen White. And this is how Haskell describes this weekend. Very interesting. During the meetings, instruction was given by Elder Jones on the subject of church and state and also on the duties of church officers. But it was the religious meetings that were so characterized by the outpouring of the Spirit of God. 
And you really have to go and read these, these entire articles to get the sense of what was going on. No pressure was brought to bear upon any, but when the sin was confessed, the song of praise and thanksgiving which followed was refreshing indeed. Expressions like the following, even from old Sabbath keepers, were frequently heard. I never experienced anything like this. It seems we have a new gospel. I never understood the love of God as I do at the present time. His character appears so different to me from what I ever did before. Now, this was a message of the goodness of God, righteousness by faith um, that was being presented. A solemn impression rested upon many that it was a few drops of what will be experienced by those who have a part in the closing work. He's talking about latter rain. In the loud cry of the third angel's message, that will ripen the grain for harvest. Can it be, Haskell asked, true that the hope which has apparently been so long deferred is about to be realized? Can it be true that we are really in the midst of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which will increase in power and extent until it swells into a loud cry of the third angel's message? And I think his answer was yes. Well, Ellen White wrote quite a bit about this South Lancaster meetings. And her statements were very much the same. Notice, the meetings continued a week beyond their first appointment. The school was dismissed. So they said, forget, let's forget having classes. Let's just allow the students to come in and participate in these meetings. Elder Jones came from Boston and labored most earnestly for the people, speaking twice, sometimes three times a day. The flock of God were fed with soul-nourishing food. The very message the Lord has sent to the people of this time was presented in the discourses. There were many, even among the ministers, who saw the truth as it is in Jesus in a light in which they never before viewed it. They saw the Savior, now notice this, as a sin-pardoning Savior and the truth as the sanctifier of the soul. She continues, I have never seen a revival work go forward with such thoroughness and yet remain so free from undue excitement. And you will see this in her description of these meetings and events over the next few years. There was no urging no inv or inviting. The people were not called forward. But there was a solemn realization that Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We seemed to breathe in the very atmosphere of heaven. Angels were indeed hovering around. The church, the Lord, had visited his people. And uh, Ellen White was not speaking against altar calls. She did them herself. But there were times when there was no need to make an altar call because people were all up front already. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they were giving their testimony and sharing. Well, Ellen White would continue to write about this South Lancaster meetings for years to come. She wrote this in 1890. Those who were at South Lancaster last winter know that the church and school were moved upon by the Spirit of God. Nearly every student was swept in by the heavenly current. And living testimonies were given that were not surpassed even by the testimonies of 1844 before the disappointment. She's talking about the midnight cry. And by the way, in that time period, 1850s, Ellen White wrote about the future when the latter rain would come and 
In one statement, it's that the latter rain would come like the midnight cry, but 10 times the power. And in this era, 1880s, 1890s, she talks about referring, and other people do too, comparing it to the 1844 movement. 1894, Ellen White made this comment. One place we were laboring in America, and there were, was every youth in our college at South Lancaster, Massachusetts, converted as we were telling them the simple story of the cross to come to Jesus just as they were. You know, sometimes I think we're dumbing down our young people by thinking that we have to entertain them and, and produce things like the world in order to keep them in our church. We've been doing it for many years, and I, I see the percentage still climbing. I don't think it's working. So I think we need to go back to the simple story of the cross and thank God for programs like Youth for Jesus. Right? The glory of God came into that meeting, Ellen White continues. It did not come only to a few, but at this time, like a tidal wave, it swept through the congregation, and what a time of rejoicing. Uh, Fred Bischoff has done a study on that word phrase, tidal wave. You can actually download it on his website, fredbischoff.com. Very interesting, the emphasis, Ellen White, she used that term several times. <clears throat> Yeah, during this time period. Well, we're going to jump past uh, 1889, the rest of the camp meetings. We could spend several hours, really, just on those camp meetings that year and amazing results. 1891, uh, Wagner gave 16 presentations on the Book of Romans, and I'm only going to look at one paragraph in his last sermon, um, March 25, 1891. Now, we're just kind of catching him midstream, but I just the last sentence here I want you to notice. Then we submit ourselves to him, and the power will rest on us, and the word that we preach will go with power, and the loud cry of the third angel's message will be here. Then notice what Wagner says. I rejoice tonight in the belief that the loud cry is now beginning. And Wagner was not the only one. There were other people all during this period that realized God is working upon this people, and the loud cry is beginning. Now. As with all through this history, if you want to find rejection, you'll find that. If you want to find those that were praising the Lord, you will find that. I think it's good to look at both. Uh, <clears throat> A.G. Daniels was not at the 91 General Conference. He was in Australia, but they got the bulletins from the General Conference with all these sermons. Notice what he has to say 10 years later. I, it was at the conference of 1891 when the ministers who were pre preaching that message gave such stirring sermons and messages here in this tabernacle, Dime Tabernacle in Battle Creek. Do you know that the mighty pulsations of your meeting here in this tabernacle were felt around the globe? We felt them in Australia. And when we got the bulletins and began to read, our hearts were stirred. And I have seen brethren sit and read those messages with tears streaming down their cheeks. I have seen them fairly convulsed with the power that was in the message, even though only printed in the bulletin. Although they had not had their attention called to the message before, as they read the bulletins, they went down on their knees and noticed they found the righteousness which is of faith. Amen.
Well, like I said, not everybody, even at the 1891 conference, received that blessing. Notice Ellen White's statement in her last sermon there, March 24. In the revival work that has been going forward here during the past winter, we have had no fanaticism. And that, again, is important because obviously she's responding to those that said this is fanaticism. But I will tell you, Ellen White says, what I have seen. I have seen men who were so lifted up in themselves, so stubborn, that their hearts were enshrouded in darkness. All the light that heaven graciously sent them was interpreted to be darkness. Now, again, you know, we should walk softly when we read this because these were people who were very sincere in what they were rising up against. And I tell you, we're made of the same substance and we can do the same thing. And Lord help us. Well, the, I, I need to add here that the feelings towards Ellen White had grown to a point uh, that became very critical, actually, 1891. She actually had a dream four months before in November that she was preaching a sermon before a large gathering of the brethren. And in this dream, she saw herself preaching from 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the story of Samuel and Israel, where Israel decides, we're kind of getting tired of having a prophet leader. We would rather have a king. Well, on March 24, that where I just read that last uh, statement, Ellen White preached her sermon, including from 1 Samuel chapter 8. And I believe God was warning his people at the heart of the work there not to repeat what Israel had done. Three weeks later, it was voted that Ellen White should go to Australia. Now again, there was sincerity there, I don't doubt. There was work to be done in Australia, but Ellen White would later say God did, that was not God's number one plan. It took her out of the heart of the work, and a confederacy, as she called it, or kingly rule, came into Battle Creek in a, in a way never seen before, and the results lasted for years, and dare I say, maybe even in to our day today. Well, six months before 1891, Ellen White, uh, recognizing this uh, backlash, even against the testimony, uh, the testimonies, the spirit of prophecy, she felt like she herself could hardly go travel around and say things uh, because there was so much unbelief. And so when Loughborough, they were going to move him from California, he was one of the pioneers that had been there from the early days. And he was a support, staunch supporter of the spirit of prophecy. And rather than sending him to Nebraska, Ellen White, notice what she said should be done. I hear everywhere I go objections to the testimonies, quoting Elder Smith and Butler. They do not believe the testimonies. Now that's general conference president, or former general conference president and editor of the review. I consider the position and work of Elders Butler, Farnworth Smith, and numerous others is to unsettle the faith of the people of God by things which they say, but which they ought not to say, and things that left unsaid, which they ought to say. And this state of things is leavening the church. Elder Loughborough has stood firmly for the testimony. Should not he be placed in a position where he can do the most good? 
the Lord would have his voice heard as was John's, telling the things he has seen and that which he has heard and he himself has experienced in the rise and progress of the third angel's message. Now, Brother Olson, find someone else for Nebraska and let Elder Loughborough stand in his right place as a Caleb coming to the front and bearing a decided testimony in the face of unbelief and doubt and skepticism. So you get the idea, Ellen White wants Loughborough then to have not just be tied down in one place. That was not his talent or where God wanted him right then. So in the next year, 1891, uh, the camp meetings, Loughborough joined with Jones, Wagner, Prescott, Olson, conference president, general conference president, and Ellen White in the camp meeting circuits. And the idea was that Loughborough would share the past experience of Adventism, the rise of, of the movement, the, the, how the Lord used this, the testimony of Jesus involved in all of that. So it was the past message shared along with the fresh, fresh message, as Ellen White would, would call it. And we're going to take a look at some of these events here in the 1891 camp meetings as these two things were joined together. Now this was written by W.W. Stebbins. He's encouraging people to go to the camp meetings, summer of 1891. My lonely brethren, make a desperate effort to reach our camp meetings and institutes at least. It is reasonable to believe that in, ever, in very near future at some of the general gatherings, when we are all in one accord in one place, the latter rain will drop upon us in a marked degree. Attend our general meetings, pray without ceasing, drink in the laddering, help swell the loud cry of the third angel's message. Now, G.A. Irwin was president of the Ohio Conference, and we're going to look at the Mount Vernon uh, camp meeting now. Only one camp meeting from that summer. And he was also encouraging before the meeting those to come from his conference to come to this camp meeting. We have the promise of the presence of Elder Loughborough and A.T. Jones. Elder Loughborough, the oldest minister in point of service among us as a people, his early experiences and reminiscences are very interesting and are calculated to inspire faith in the message and the spirit of prophecy that attends it. So he's encouraging people to come. We are planning to have the meeting conducted in harmony with the suggestions of Sister White in her recent articles in the review. Now, this was another point that's very interesting. Ellen White had a four-part series in the review, June 23, June 30, July 7, and July 14, 1891, titled Spiritual Benefit, the Object of Camp Meetings. And so in these articles, she was saying, you know, we need to get away from so much of the business and focusing our camp meetings more evangelistically and at leading people to the simple experience of Christian living. And uh, again, J. Irwin is saying, come, you know, that the blessings may be poured out upon us. Now, this is L.A. Smith reporting on this camp meeting after it was over. Notice, this meeting was held at Mount Vernon, was in several respects the most remarkable, which it was ever our privilege to attend. From the beginning until the close, the Spirit of God was present in a wonderful manner and was witnessed in the power of the spoken word and the outpouring of spiritual blessing and the healing of sick. Graphic pictures of the early days and of the power of God which attended the proclamation of the first message were furnished by Elder Loughborough. So you get the idea. Loughborough's sharing the past message. Professor Prescott gave timely instruction on the nature of faith and 
addresses on education as well. The subject, though, notice, the subject of righteousness by faith was the one great central theme of the meeting. So it went throughout. Whatever the subject was, you know, topic was, righteous by faith was its foundation. As the wonderful truths relative to this subject were drawn from the storehouse of God's word and held up in all their beauty before the assembled campers, divested of every obscuring tradition, and a vision was obtained of the blessings which were theirs through the righteousness of Christ. Many were led to yield themselves fully into the hands of God, claiming his blessings and promises. Never before, Smith says, have we seen a camp so permeated and pervaded by the sentiment of praise to God. At the early morning meetings, at family worship, at all the meetings of a social nature, it was the theme of every testimony and the thought of every heart. And as the incense of praise arose in its fullness to heaven from the tinted grove, the blessing of God descended in richest measure upon the heart of his joyful people. The testimony of many was, and I love this, we never saw it on this wise before. Quoting from New Testament. Well, Mount Vernon, there's something else that happened there. It was, it was actually held close to the sanitarium that was uh, in a short distance there from the camp meeting. And L.A. Smith, again, tells us of this part of the camp meeting that's, that's I, that I think is very interesting. A very short intervening space between the camp from the Mount Vernon sanitarium, the hospitality of which contributed much to the pleasantness of the situation. This well-known health resort is at the present time filled with patients. So now these patients then were invited to come to the camp meeting. Not the least remarkable feature of the meeting was one of which we have already alluded, the manifestation of God's power to heal the sick and those otherwise physically afflicted. So you get the idea here that people came to hear the messages presented righteousness by faith. But when they got there, they realized, you know, this Savior that we're learning about, whether it's for the first time or in a deeper sense than we ever have, can also heal our bodies as well. Thirty persons experienced the healing of divine touch in answer to the prayer of faith. And it was, again, made literally true, the blind see the lame walk, the deaf hear. So wonderful a token of God's nearness to his people. Now, um, Ellen White comments about something very similar. In a vision of the night, this was later, by the way. In a vision of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Many were praising God. The sick were healed and other miracles were wrought. A spirit of intercession was seen even as was manifested before the great day of Pentecost. Hundreds of thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. Hearts were convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit and a spirit of genuine conversion was manifested. On every side, doors were thrown open to the proclamation of truth. The world seemed to be lightened with the heavenly influence. Great blessings were received by the true and humble people of God. I heard voices of thanksgiving and praise, and there seemed to be a reformation such as we witnessed in 1844. Now, she, meant, she wrote this later, but notice now 
Loughborough's description of this camp meeting. Very similar to what Ellen White would write later. As Christ was lifted up in his loveliness at this Mount Vernon camp meeting, the blessing and power of God seemed already and waiting to respond to the faith of the people. The Lord drew very near. The entire camp was deeply moved. Shouts of victory and song of praise. The rejoicing of those who had found peace in believing and the joy in the Holy Ghost were heard on every side. He continues, As the power of God was especially manifested, many of the afflicted were encouraged to seek him as the great physician and as the rule, and James 5 was followed, over a score of persons were anointed with oil in the name of the Lord and declared themselves healed both soul and body through the goodness and power of God. I can bear witness, says Loughborough, that the Ohio camp meeting was the nearest approach to a Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit of God I have witnessed since 1844. Now, he's not saying Pentecostalism, but he's talking about a early reign, you know, outpouring of the Holy Spirit like as at Pentecost. Now, just a few weeks later, Ellen White wrote this, and this is at the Lansing camp meeting. I'm just going to look at this one statement she made. She says that the third angel's message is swelling into the loud cry. This is 1891. And you must not feel at liberty to neglect the present duty and still entertain the idea that at some future time you will be the recipients of great blessings when without any effort on your part a wonderful revival will take place. So she's saying now is the time. Today you are to have your vessels purified that it may be ready for the heavenly dew, ready for the showers of the latter rain. So again, you can see this emphasis during the summer. And again, I'm just really glossing over this. Now, notice at the end of this summer, 1891, Loughborough took a lot of what he had been presenting and he put it into a book, Rise and Progress of Seventh-day Adventists. And that book was sold then for till uh, 1903 when the review burnt down and the plates were there. And this story of the Adventist's past was told. Now, after the 1903, then he revised that a little bit and it became the Second Great Advent Movement. Now that book is probably one you've seen, which has been reprinted in 1992 with the effort of a various group. And I'm very thankful. If you have not read this book, it's very worthwhile because I believe it strengthens our faith in this movement from the very beginning. And by the way, I, I believe it's Lightbearer's Booth has this in audio form. That, and you can also download it, download it online. So stop by the light bear booth and you can find out more about that. I think I'm going to jump ahead here to uh, 1892. And this is uh, April 6, 1892. Ellen White writing to S.N. Haskell from Australia. We're going to look at a few slides on... This letter, it's an unpublished letter, so I'm assuming you've never read what Ellen White wrote to S.N. Haskell, April 6, 1892. What more can I say? My heart is filled to overflowing. Only those who are fit for this work, who are imbued with the Holy Spirit, the light has come. The light that will lighten the whole earth with its bright rays has been shining from the throne of God. What verse is she referring to, or what, where is that word coming from? Revelation 18. 
She continues, Brother Haskell, I present this to you that you may present it to others. Oh, that the Lord would convict and convert souls that the light now shining may not be removed from us because we do not walk in the light and lead others out of darkness. I beg of them, rest not until their souls shall be all aglow with the bright beams of the Son of Righteousness. Those who make no use of the light which they have will not only fail to receive greater light, but they will lose that which now shines upon them. Notice how many times she keeps using the word now. Like Capernaum, they have been exalted to heaven in point of privileges unless they respond to the light they would be left in complete darkness. I tell you, Ellen White continues, God is testing us now, just now. The whole earth is to be lightened with the glory of God. The light is shining now. And how hard it is for proud hearts to accept Jesus as their personal savior. How hard to get out of the rut of legal religion. How hard to grasp the rich and free gift of Christ. Those who have not accepted this offering will not understand anything of the light which fills the whole earth with his glory. Over six times she, she uses the word now to describe the light that was shining upon the church at this time. And three times she references Revelation 18.1 in this statement. Now Haskell uh, took Ellen White's advice And in July and August, he wrote a, a six-part series. And of course, you can't read any of that writing, but it was, his series title was Watchman, What of the Night? And in that, he quoted this uh, Ellen White letter to him. And he went over the loud cry and the loud rain. This is from his number three sermon. I'll just look at one um, paragraph here. Who cannot discern, even in this movement of especially calling the attention of our people to Christ as a personal Savior, imparting present salvation, the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees? If so, should we not ask the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain? Which, if we do, he has promised to make bright clouds and give them showers of the latter rain to everyone grass in the field. Has not the time come for this, Haskell asks. We verily believe it has. And you really should read these, all six of these articles. Well, I'm running out of time uh, quickly, so I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to have time to go through the 1892 camp meetings. But I want to kind of end here with a story. The John F. Baylor story. I don't know, have any of you heard of John F. Baylor that didn't hear me talk about it before? My daughter can't be included, so <laughs> that doesn't count, right? John F. Baylor, born in 1840 uh, in Europe, moved to the United States with his family uh, at the age of four. His uh, mother died at 12, and they were living there in New York, and because his father couldn't uh, afford to take care of him, he uh, had to kind of 
give his children to other people that would take care of him. And so John F. Baylor uh, ended up going to a family. Now, he was raised a Methodist, but I don't think they were practicing in any way. Anyways, the family that he went to, the man was a bar owner, and so he tended bars, I guess, as a, as a younger kid. And then he uh, moved to Wisconsin, and he became a, uh, started working in a confection factory. I guess that's where they made candies and things like that. And when he was uh, 18, working at this factory, he uh, developed an eye infection. And within 24 hours, you know, one of his eyes completely swelled shut. And his father, of course, took him to the oculist, they called him, I guess, in that day, to try to find remedies. And this took place over about a two-month period. And uh, one, one of the doctors, of course, this infection, of course, wasn't taken care of, and a film grew over his eye. And so they actually, in trying to scrape the infection off, pierced his pupil. And he, of course, that would take the infection right into his eye, and then he was totally blind. And finally, out of desperation, they removed his entire eye because of the pain, if, if you can imagine in the days before a real anesthesia, at least as we know it. Well, about a month later, the same thing happened with the other eye, and uh, they had to remove it as well, completely. So 18 years old, totally blind. This is what he says in his own words. In the first wild anguish of my young life, when realizing for the first time that darkness was my doom, there was no more bright sunshine for my poor eyes. I sought God's help upon my bended knees. And for the first time in my life, and my petition was for physical sight. Physical sight I did not obtain, but the eyes of my mind became enlightened in a measure so I saw myself an offender of God lost without Christ. I realized my condition so forcibly that in guilt and shame I fell from my kneeling posture to the floor. So, you know, I think God used this experience to bring this young man to his blind spiritual condition. Well, he went to the School of the Blind in Wisconsin, and uh, for several years he wore glass eyes, but then that was, became such a pain, he just wore dark glasses to kind of cover the holes in his head. And uh, he got married and had a, had a son, and in 1870s, he met a second Adventist, someone that had come out of the Millerite movement, and he began to believe in the second coming of Christ. Well, then soon after, he met Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, J.N. Andrews' wife actually read her husband's books to J.F. Bowler, and he became a Seventh-day Adventist. His first wife died, he married a, an Adventist lady, and they became coal porters. Now, he hired a guide. Now, they didn't have uh, seeing eye dogs, I guess, like they do today. So he would hire a young lad, and he even uh, tells a little bit of his story. He used to jump on trains at one side of town, and then they would jump off when they got to the other side of town, if you can imagine. And one day, he actually, his guide, or his lad that guided him around, jumped off the train, and, and then he waited a little bit and jumped. Well, they happened to be going over a trestle if you can imagine, not quite this high, it was about 20 feet, and the Lord spared his life. Well, 
1888, he wrote his book, Thrilling Incidents, Life Experiences of John F. Bowler, and poems, his wife wrote poems, and had some recipes in there and so forth, and they would sell this as they went door to door. And by the way, you can still buy the book on Amazon. So they were colporters, and uh, I suppose maybe something like this. They had their box of books, and they would go door to door. And one of the books they probably sold as a colporter in 1888 and after that would be The Great Controversy. Now, I don't know for sure, but in The Great Controversy, I'm wondering if J.F. Ballard read this, or obviously someone read it to him. And Ellen White, when she revised The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, in The Great Controversy, 1888, she added this statement about the latter rain. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestations of power of God than marked its beginning or its opening. The prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former rain at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain at its close. Servants of God, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, will hasten from place to place, proclaim the message from heaven. By thousands of voices all over the earth, the warning will be given. Miracles will be wrought, the sick will be healed, and signs and wonders will follow the believers. Well, I don't know, again, if J.F. Beller read that, but obviously he read something that indicated to him that during the latter reign, there would be manifestations of God's power. And in the spring of 1891, he went to a Bible school in Los Angeles, and the director, uh, Otho, or Otho Godsmark, was the director. And this is Godsmark's uh, writing about this time. In the early spring of 1891, while connected with the Los Angeles, California Bible School, Brother Baylor and family spent several weeks with us, during which time his blindness was often a subject of conversation. And being interested in the study of medicine, I paid special attention to the condition of the stumps, which was all that was left in the sockets from which the entire ball of each eye had been removed. He, Brother Baylor, stated at that time, 1891, that it was his belief, if he remained faithful to the end, that during the special outpouring of the latter rain, his eyes would be restored. What do you think? Is that fanaticism? Well, four days after Ellen White, 1892, wrote to S.N. Haskell and said in that one letter six times now that light is shining now just now quoted you know verse revelation 18 1. four days after that the selma california camp meeting ended in uh, selma california that was the last fine the, the last evening meeting and uh people went back to their tents or they went back to the town of selma and uh, some went back to a hotel or motel there. may have looked like this. And in one of the rooms, uh, as evening drew on, they sat and talked of the camp meeting. They just experienced about the message that was rising, about God's power to heal. 
Someone lit a lantern in a room, and as is in today's hotels or motels, sometimes there's two rooms with a door between the two adjoining rooms. And the person who had lit that lantern opened the door, and the light from that lantern shone through that door onto the man sitting in the seat in the next room. And the man sitting there was John F. Baylor, 1892. Now, you remember he's the one that said he believed if he was faithful when the latter rain was poured out. Notice what he, I'll let him say it in his words. Brother Frank Thorpe, my wife, daughter, and myself were talking on the subject of healing in answer to prayer when suddenly the light of the lamp made such an impression as to cause me to exclaim, what is that? It was the lamp 16 feet away, it was the adjoining room, and the door between the rooms had been opened. For some months previous, I had been exercised in reference to the possibility of having my eyes restored by divine power, for I knew there was no other source of help. As my faith increased, new eyeballs have gradually been growing and sight increasing. I can see sufficiently to distinguish light from darkness, some colors, movement of persons. I can see men walking as trees. They appear tall like trees. My sight is best at twilight. I have reason to believe and hope that my sight will be fully restored. Now, don't ask me to explain this medically. But he's quoting here from the story of Jesus where Jesus healed a blind man one time and he didn't fully see. There's something in that story of significance here. Notice how he continues this. Lately, an oculist examined and investigated my eyes two successive days and finally reluctantly admitted that in all history, no case has been recorded of a man ever seeing after the eyeballs had been taken out. Now, I don't know the significance of this story. I really don't. And I was, I'm, I've been reluctant to share it because I don't, I don't fully know what this means, but I can tell you what it means to me. The camp meetings of 1892, I wish we had a few more hours to go through the camp meetings of 1892. It is amazing what God was doing in this country. And that message kept going all through the summer into the fall. Revival began in Battle Creek at the college, spread into the whole town of Battle Creek. Week of prayer, not only in Battle Creek, but around the world as people read the message in the week of prayer meetings for 1892. Spilled over into 1893. And I believe the, that God, at 1893, God was bringing the Laodicean message to his church and saying, I have this message for you. I brought it four years ago, and it was spurned. Now, please, accept that message now. Repentance was made. I tell you, at the Lansing, I have to tell you the story. Brother Miller, he'd been fighting against the message. Jones and Wagner, Prescott, Ellen White had written him letters. He wrote them off. At the Lansing camp meeting, he stood up in front of 3,000 people and said, I finally see the light. You know, he, he repented for that. He sat back down. No sooner did he sit back down, 
uh, but he got convicted again. He, he hadn't been clear enough. So he stood back up, and in front of all those thousands of people, he turns to A.T. Jones and personally apologizes in front of thousands of people. It, Olson describes it as electrifying on the congregation. It, like, opened the floodgates. A leadership standing up and saying, you know, we, I have been wrong in this. Amazing were the results. Well, I have to tell you that, and I don't have time to go through all this, but Satan... No, no, Satan knows what's up. And he brought four things against the church. And I, I, I just can read them here. Through fanatical criticism, two men decided the church is Babylon, went out with a message called the loud cry, calling the church Babylon. Believe me, that's not the way to go. Through worldliness in the church and in our schools, 1893, you can read about what happened. All of these things pushed back the Holy Spirit through mistakes of the messengers themselves. The Anarized situation, if you've heard about the story, you haven't really heard the whole story unless you dig into the story. There's a chapter in Wounded about that. And the last but not least, and I think the most damaging, because this happened all along, through pharisaical blindness, with con which continued to fight against the Minneapolis message and its messengers, even attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to extremism, excitement, and fanaticism, Satan succeeded in bringing about a delay. And by the way, that, that accusation of fanaticism was leveled against this revival movement of 1892 and 1893. And I hate to say, but to this very day, 2014, book published by our church states, 1892-93 revival meetings where the root went right into the Holy Flesh movement. And that is a lie. This was a true movement of God. And identifying it as fanaticism pushes the Holy Spirit away. We need to be honest with our young people today, even if it means admitting that everything has not always gone as told. We're here in 2014, 125 years after God wanted to bring an end to all of this. Over 20 times between 1888 and 1950, Ellen White said Christ could have come ere this. And well, so what does the John F. Baller story mean to me? And this is, I'll conclude with this. And by the way, I have to go back to my last slide so I can get the notes. Well, these revivals came in. They were identified as fanaticism. Now, yes, Satan always brings in fanaticism to discredit the truth. But we have to be careful we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. 1896, Ellen White said, you know, Satan succeeded. She makes those statements. She talked about Satan coming into the temple of God and thus bringing a delay. In um, 1898 or 1895, there's an article about Balor. His eyesight is continuing to improve. 1898, he's mentioned, but nothing stated, blind or not. 1898, by the way, was the first time Ellen White saw in a dream that she probably wouldn't live to see the second coming. 1900, there's an article, or there's a mention of Bowler's book, and it just mentions him as a blind man. 1901, of course, Ellen White writes, we may have to remain in this world many more years because of insubordination. Now, I believe she was applying that to more than just Minneapolis, but definitely that was included in the years that followed. 1909, Brother Baylor was mentioned twice as our blind brother and our blind, one of our blind agents. So at least for me, this is what 
his story tells me. He believed that when the latter rain came, God would restore his sight. But the latter rain doesn't just come bang and it's here. It's, it begins to drop as dew and rain and the light begins to shine brighter and brighter. Brother Baller's eyesight improved and then he died a blind man. And I know maybe ASI is the worst place to say something like this because as a group of missionaries been doing work all over the world. But folks, it is 2014. And God wanted to come a long time ago. I said I was finished, but let me end with this quote. We often... Uh, we may have read this before. Those who think of the result of hastening or hindering the gospel think of it in relation to themselves and to the world. We think about how it affects us. But few, of, few, few think of its relation to God. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our creator. All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. Every departure from the right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach his ideal brings him grief. Our world is a vast laser house, a scene of misery that we dare not allow even our thoughts to dwell upon. Did we realize it as it is, the burden would be too terrible. Yet God feels it all. In order to destroy sin and its result, he gave his beloved and he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring this sin of misery to an end. And I believe that we do have nothing to fear for the future unless we forget. And being willing to acknowledge the victories and the mistakes of the past will open the door, ours as well, by the way, will open that door so that the true witness can come in. Because he's still standing there and he's still saying, I have all of these remedies, I have a robe of righteousness and I have and all this richness, but your description of yourselves and mine are not the same. Well, I pray the Lord has touched your heart in some way today. And, and my desire is that we sense the time that we're living from God's perspective. And not, you know, not just ours. So will you uh, please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, I pray today uh, that you will help us as a people. Lord, you've brought all of these uh, folks here to ASI, people that are working around the world, uh, seeking to bring your second coming and hasten that day. And yet, Lord, if we are honest with our past and our history, we realize that we're here much longer than we should have been. Lord, open our eyes to see the full implication, our own personal involvement at that, Lord, forgive me if in any way or in the ways that I've misrepresented you even today in presenting this. Lord, I pray that you'll bless us through the rest of this weekend. May our hearts be drawn to you. And Lord, may that 
latter rain and loud cry which you sought to bring so long ago return to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.